0: Well, you probably all have been curious, what book I'm looking at up here, for those of you that can see, can you read it? The Guinness Book of World Records, 1998. I was looking for one of these, and every library I went to, they were checked out. Apparently, this is a hot item. And so I finally got a hold of Jennifer Kuhn. I said, do you have a copy? She says, yes, I do, but it's an old one. I graduated in 1998, and it's an old one. Man! But I remember as a kid loving to just finger through here and see all the wild and random things. I mean, here's a picture of a guy with 57 glasses on his chin. Isn't that incredible? What are you going to do when you grow up? Balance 57 glasses on my chin? I don't know. Or some of these fruits. Look at this. This is one string bean down here or green bean. Here's a world sized pumpkin. Here's an onion. I mean, this is good stuff. Uh, We go back here, these were always interesting to me too, some of the tallest people, they didn't have pictures of the tallest, they had pictures of the shortest twins, and they talk about one of the shortest uh, men being, uh, well that's the tallest, is what, where is he, Um, 7 foot 1 inch, that's identical twins, oh the shortest man, here's one I I was going to share, he's only 22 and a half inches tall and weighed 37 and a half pounds. That would change things for you a little bit, wouldn't it? Let's see. There was another one back here I thought was interesting. Of course, the whole book's kind of interesting. Here we go. For those of you guys who uh, are into working out, this guy set the record for the most push-ups back in 93. In a one 24-hour period, 46,001. There's a little star here that says, for rules, see page 300, they know you're doubting. And then this one I thought was interesting, I shared this with my youth, has to do with uh, computers in 1998, this is uh, a huge breakthrough, this book isn't turning pages for me like I need it to, largest capacity memory chip, 1998, here it is. It is a four gigabyte dynamic random access memory chip. Wow. And they go on to say it has the capabilities of storing six hours of audio data. (laughs) I have an iPod now that fits in my pocket that I have over a month of solid sermons. This was 1998. Anyway... There was another record that was set, and maybe this could be something that would be a Pathfinder badge, something you could accomplish. This one was by a Remy Bricka, was his name. The date was 1988, April 2. And he crossed the Atlantic, setting a record. He left from Spain, the Spanish Canary Islands, just south of Spain, went all the way across the Atlantic to Trinidad, just north north and east of Venezuela. 3,502 miles, but how he did it was what was unique. Does anybody know? It says he walked on the water. And you think, how did he do that? Well, he had these polyester ski floats attached, one on each foot, and he made a motion kind of like when you're cross-country skiing, and he had some form of paddles that he would do and all this kind of stuff. I think it took him 60 days to make that journey all the way across. And when they asked him about his experience, do you know what he said? Well, it was, it was fascinating and all, but what really was kind of annoying was the slow pace of it. You think? <laughs> Walking on water. Where do we get this idea from anyway? Do you think he perhaps was reading his Bible and was inspired? That's the story I want to look at this morning because I believe there's some lessons there that Jesus wants to teach us. What circumstances surround that rather strange story, honestly? And in what ways does that story apply to us, to you and me, today? So let's turn in our Bibles if you brought your swords this morning. Matthew is the account that uh, speaks of Peter walking on the water. The only account, really, that speaks of him walking on the water. Matthew chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 22. But let me give you a little bit of a... Well, we'll read the first verse, and I'll give you some background. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. And there we read, immediately, Jesus made his disciples... Uh, Perhaps a better translation is he strongly compelled his disciples to get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, if you're like me, you recognize we're kind of coming in in the middle of a story in so many ways, and as you glance back in your Bible, you see that just Moments before he has fed the 5,000. And so there's this huge multitude there, yet we see this haste, this urgency of Jesus to leave, to break it up. And we probably have some reluctancy of the disciples. What's exactly going on? And the reality of the situation is Jesus had become too popular. The crowd wanted to appoint him king right there. He was their long-awaited deliverer. He could make Judea an earthly paradise, land flowing with milk and honey. He could break the power of the hated Romans. I mean, think of the endless possibilities. He could heal the soldiers wounded in battle. And, and, you know, if he comes along, it's kind of like having the cafeteria. He could feed everybody. He could conquer the nations and give Israel their long-sought dominion. This is our chance, everybody's saying. But poor Jesus, he's too modest, he's too humble. Left to himself, he'll never lay claim to David's throne. So we are going to do him a favor. He'll thank us for it later. And so they collaborate together, and they agreed to do Jesus this big favor. After all, he needs our help. And they desire to make him king by force. For they themselves have a service in this too. But also they want to exalt him as their deliverer. We gather that from John's account, chapter 6, verse 15, where Jesus perceived, it says, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And while we're in that line of thought, think about the disciples for a moment. I mean, talk about their chance. They would finally be recognized. Were they always to be known by their friends and their family as followers of this false prophet? I mean, the whole church at that time condemned this man, saying he was following a rebel. But at this moment, this was the moment they had been waiting for. We can't let this opportunity pass us by. And after all, why wouldn't Jesus want to relieve us of all of this pain and and uncertainty and, and really, honestly, just the heckling that we've had to receive? Doesn't He want to make our way less painful? And I have to ask do you ever seem to perceive God's will better than He does? To know what needs to happen at this very moment? Do you ever have selfish, self-serving plans for God? Do you ever find yourself angry and upset if God doesn't lead in your life just like he's supposed to? For their disciples, the love of honor had blinded them. And as they reluctantly climbed into the boat, I imagine there were faces back and forth. And as Jesus left, there was some grumbling. And and how did this happen? How do we end up here? What's going on? Maybe there was some blaming. I don't know. And rather than focus on this incredible miracle that they had just witnessed, they allowed their minds to drift lower and lower. And lower until they find themselves asking, does Jesus want us to suffer? And why did he allow John the Baptist to die just such an awful death just a few days ago? Find that story earlier in this chapter. Desire of Ages tells us they brought upon themselves a great spiritual darkness and it says they questioned could Jesus be an imposter after what they have just witnessed Jesus feeds this huge crowd but it doesn't go according to their plan and all this momentum is being wasted Jesus must not be for real they say God do you even exist do you care All this time that we've been believing in a lie and they're grumbling. Sometimes I believe we force God into a box. We want Him to fit our paradigm, our way of thinking. And as soon as God acts or doesn't act does something outside of my perception of what he should do, then I'm quick to grumble. Are you? To allow myself to sink into spiritual darkness. And the deeper I go, the easier it is to question, could God be an imposter? I thought he was a God of love. I thought he cared for me. And so we have to pick up our story again. Verse 23, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And now when evening came, he was alone there. You see, Jesus alone, And Jesus alone sees that to do nothing, to allow such a thing to happen, to be crowned king would only bring violence and revolt, and the work of his spiritual kingdom would be paralyzed. Jesus alone sees all this. And so he steals away to be with his father in prayer. He goes up to the mountain by himself to pray, and now when evening came, he was alone. Not just physically. But he was completely misunderstood. Completely alone. Everyone thought they knew what his mission was. Everyone thought they knew where they fit into the picture. Everyone thought they knew exactly what God's will was. And just how it was going to work out in their own lives. And in the big picture they were all blind to the purposes of God. Jesus alone knew the trials that they would face. Is it true? And he longed to prepare them to get their focus off of themselves and onto Jesus Christ. To get them to trust his plan and his purpose in his timing. Even when it makes no sense to our human, convoluted, backwards way of thinking. I just don't understand it. I just don't understand it. And so Jesus is praying to the Father. I believe not, oh, this great temptation that they want to crown me king, that sounds so nice. But no, he's overwhelmed with the thought that he's alone, that nobody gets it, that nobody understands. And here he's going to leave this church to these disciples, and they don't even get it. And they're grumbling, and they're back and forth, and they're they're a mess. And so he's interceding to the Father. He's weeping to the Father, saying, Lord, help them to see what our mission is all about. How could they stand the final test when in place of his exaltation to the throne of David they were to witness his crucifixion? And so the desire of their worldly honor I believe pained Jesus' heart. I wonder how similar must be his weeping for you and for me this morning. As he intercedes for us, even now. As he sees our lack of faith in his leading. As he sees our trust in self. As we ask him to bless what we think he should do. And so we read on, verse 24 of Matthew. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Contrary. Now, in the fourth watch, we read in verse 25 of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the sea. Now, I'm told that in reasonable weather, this trip should only take a few hours. After all, it's only five miles. But here we see them, they head off at dusk or at dark, but now it's the fourth watch. Jews had three watches, the Romans had four. So if we're at the fourth watch, we're between 3 o'clock in the morning and when the sun comes up at 6. They've been toiling and rowing, it says in Mark 6, in his account. We have this strong headwind. It's an awful situation, and they are fearful for their lives. All night long they've been laboring for perhaps nine-plus hours out there on the sea. And everyone's working to keep this boat from sinking just to simply stay alive. Now, last time this happened, Jesus was asleep, you may recall, in the bottom of the boat. But now where is he? And they see something that looks like a ghost and they're struck with fear. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this story, but the disciples' state of mind must have been pretty bad. Their thinking must have been deeply rooted in pride, in self-sufficiency, in self-promotion and honor. And maybe I'm looking into this too much, but for nine hours, Jesus intercedes for them. For nine hours, they are left to toil with the storm, to try and break down their egos, to try and get them to see their need of trust in Jesus, in him only. No, I got this. I'm a sailor. I'm okay. I mean, if it wasn't so bad, you'd think that there could be a simple conversation. Or maybe we'll let them fight the storm for an hour or two. But nine hours later, or something of that nature, he comes out onto the water to meet them. Perhaps Jesus knew it would take that long to break down their stubborn will. But it must be replaced. But within the larger story, we seem to have a case study, and here's where we get to Peter. We have an example. We have a, for instance, placed right in front of us. And so let's read that here in its entirety. Verse 28, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, "O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I see several things in this micro story only found in Matthew's account that help us to understand the larger story, if you will, of how to follow God and his will for our lives. His way, not my way. So how do we do that? How do we follow God's will for our life? Well, let me propose to you step number one, found In verse 28, when Peter asked him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come. This is so fundamental. Lord, if this is you, command me to come. We pray like that all the time, don't we? With a job or with a relationship, with a move, with the purchase of a car or a house or whatever it is. Lord, if this is your will, this is one of those fundamental questions that I get, honestly, as a pastor. Pastor, how do I know if this is God's will or not? I mean, there's this job. I really want it, but it would require us to move and to, to get a new house and that whole thing. Then we'd have to pull the kids out of school. And, and I'm just trying to weigh all this. I don't, need, I don't know what is God's will. Will you help me? How can you know? Well, I'd say there's some fundamental principles we need to apply And for you pathfinders, I would encourage you to pay close attention because even now you are making some significant decisions. But in the next 10 years, you will make decisions that will affect the rest of your life. So pay attention. So here we go. Some fundamental principles we need to apply when trying to decipher God's will. Fundamental principle number one. We need to know the difference between conviction and an impulse. You see, an impulse is flighty. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And while you may think, oh, I just have to have this, give it some time and it fades. But a conviction, however, does not fade over time, but simply grows. Does that make sense? And as you pray about it, as you think about it, as you claim James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives liberally. As you you claim Psalms 32, verse 8, I will entrust you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with mine eye. So first, are you under a growing conviction rather than a flighty impulse? Does that make sense? Fundamental principle number two, determine to do nothing outside of God's will already written in his word. I'm surprised how often I get these two. Pastor, my wife and I, are, we're just not happy. And I'm really praying about whether it is God's will for me to be with this other woman. Or... Pastor, I love this young man, and, and I want to know if it's God's will for me to marry him, but he's not a believer. Yet we do these kinds of things all too often. We play mental gymnastics to try and rationalize what we want, what I want, when it's not biblical, when there's a principle here that already speaks to it. And I may be aware of the principle, I may not, but he, oftentimes I am, and I say, well, I'll just go pray about it some more. What for? So principle number two, fundamental principle, determine to do nothing outside of God's will already written in his word. Principle number three, seek godly counsel. Now be careful on this one, because in our human nature, we can go to the individual that will tell us what our itching ears want to hear. I'm not talking about those individuals. I'm talking about godly counsel people that are probably outside the situation that you feel are connected to God that would tell you honestly and you go to them and you ask what do you think maybe they have some experience in this area I don't know but you you pull that together as well and principle number 4 look for open doors is God working things out for me in that direction now it doesn't mean there's not going to be any challenges But maybe there's a few right off the bat that you say, I don't see how this is going to work unless this and this and this. God, if you want me to go, work it out. And he does. And the disciples had already gone through this. They'd already weighed out the evidence and concluded, this is God's son. And I'm willing to give up all and follow him. They'd already done the first principle. We must wait for the Lord to say, come. Come. Peter asked the Lord to command him to come. He wasn't going to presume anything. He wanted to hear the voice of the Lord calling him, and he didn't want to rush it. And let me caution you here as well. If you rush step number one, you will be filled with doubts for the rest of your experience. Every wave that comes up, every ripple, every problem, oh, I knew I shouldn't have done this. I knew I should have done that. I knew this was a bad idea, on and on and on and on and on. Peter wanted to be sure here, Lord, if you want me to come, call me. Which leads us very easily into step number two. What does the Lord say? Come. Now you would think, okay, well that's pretty simple. But think about it. You're in a storm, maybe it's the perfect storm, and you are fearful for your life. The last place you want to be is outside of the boat. The boat is your security blanket. If anything, it's your your life raft, right? I don't want to get out of where I feel secure to do something I've never done before. And the disciples had already done this too. They left it all to follow Jesus. And the reality is, first steps can be scary. Anybody here ever done some repelling? Let me tell you, that first step is the scariest one of all. How about Skydiving? Anybody tried that one? That's the first step that'll make you think twice. Then we have like first dates. Those are scary. First move away from home. first day on the job first step out of the boat in a raging sea. Now did Peter have faith? You betcha Peter had faith. If it would have been me, I would have said, okay God, I have one more question for you. If you really want me to come, turn the water into ice. Because ice, now I can deal with that because I can test it out, right? Right? This is solid. I can start to slowly transfer my weight. Okay, both feet now. Okay, I'm letting go of the boat. Here we go. This is holding me. We're good. But he doesn't do that. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come. And he just gets out of the boat. And he starts to walk. Wow. Lord, if it's you, don't just open a few doors, we pray. Open them all. If you really want me to go to Southern, I need all the, the, the finances, the funding, everything in the bank now. I need the ice. I don't want to be irresponsible. Lord, if you really want me to take that line of work, I need the grades now to show me that I can make it in that school. Lord, give me the resources I need now before I commit myself. Give me the talents that I feel like I need now. Don't ask me to do something that makes me uncomfortable. But I think God knows if he gives us everything, there goes our trust in him. Because I have the resources. All the money's in the bank. Everything I need is right there. I say thanks and I'm on my way. You know, I've heard countless stories when God provides just on time right when we need it and no sooner. And it's my prayer. It will happen again and again on this mission trip because I still know some needs that we have. But Peter didn't know for sure. He didn't need ice. He just stepped out. And some of you here may have been struggling in step number one, but you feel confident that God has called you. And so now comes that scary moment of that first step out of the boat, out of your comfort zone. But I challenge you, if he is, step out. Don't wait until it's too late. Because you'll look back at these deep, intimate, gut-wrenching conversations that you should have had with an individual that you never had. Great, bold prayers that you should have prayed, but you never prayed. Exhilarating risks that you never took for God. Sacrificial gifts you never offered, lives you never touched. And we live in a world that's desperately filled with needs all around us. Perhaps God is calling you to be some part of something bigger than yourself, bigger than you've ever imagined. If so, don't wait to get out of the boat. Trust him. If he is calling you, and if you believe he is calling you, you've gone through all of that process, then it's time to answer his call. Get out of the boat. But then there's a third step in following God's will for your life. And it can be equally difficult. We must have the faith to finish. Follow me here. Peter was looking at Jesus. He was trusting in him. Jesus only was sustaining him. But we read verse 30. When he saw the wind was boisterous. I imagine he saw some huge wave coming at him. and that the wind was pushing, and he was totally afraid. He was petrified. This wave is going to clobber me. It's curtains for me, God. Where are you? And he started looking on the problem instead of the solution. Are you with me? He started to think about all the possibilities. He started thinking rationally, I suppose. What am I doing? I'm walking on water. I'm in the boat's way back there. This is craziness. And his focus shifted from Jesus to his circumstances. And his fear was greater at that moment than his faith. And the text says he began to sink. Friends, unlike Peter on that fateful night, unlike the disciples and their grumbling because Jesus wouldn't follow their prescribed plan, rather than doubt, I want to have a faith that will finish To trust God when it doesn't make sense. To trust his plan, his timing, his purpose. doesn't matter. I'm focused on Christ. I believe Jesus wanted to point out some of Peter's weaknesses. His need of continual dependence on him. And while I like to think that I'm different than Peter, that I would not doubt so easily like he did... I was reminded just this week of my own doubts. I had something I was praying about. I said, Lord, if this is your will, I want to do it. If not, I don't want to do it. There was all kinds of reasons. It couldn't have worked out and various things. And it did start to work out. It did start to come together. I was getting all excited. And then the whole thing just went squash. And guess what? I was frustrated. I was a little bit angry. I was irritated. What gives? What gives? Until it hit me, just this last Wednesday night at our youth Bible study, I thought, you know, I had prayed, God, if this is not the right timing, if this isn't what you want for us or for our family or whatever it is, it wasn't a call, we weren't moving, just don't even think that. (laughs) And then it got squashed. And God said, yeah, in my mind, that's what he said, yeah, didn't you pray that? I could work it out if I if that was what it was the right thing but if not and you said you'd be fine with it how come you're not fine with it I got quiet real quick Is our weakness ever the same as Peter's today do we need faith to finish first steps are difficult at the academy or at college they can be scary but do you have the faith to finish first step in marriage is big do you have the faith to finish First steps with children can be rather unsure. Do you have faith to finish? First step on the job can be stressful. First step with God is significant, but do you have the faith to finish and finish strong by His grace? And what if you're a doubter? You do just like Peter. And not until you're sinking did Peter fully realize his need, but what does he do? He cries out, Lord, save me. In the midst of our storm, we may feel that God is far away, but he's right next to us, just waiting for us to call upon him. And no sooner were the words out of his mouth than Jesus reached down with his strong, never tiring arm and pulls him up out of his storm and says, oh, Peter, my dear Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How many times does he have to say the same thing about me? Oh, David, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I alone can see the big picture. Don't you trust me? Don't you believe that I have your best interest at heart? All you see, David, is the here and the now and the wave that is overtaking you. But with divine sight, I can see far into the future, I can hear him say, and I promise someday I'll explain it all to you. And you will see that I have never led you than otherwise, and you would choose to be led if you could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which you are fulfilling as a co-worker with me. So, David, do you trust me? Isn't that the real basis of faith anyway? I mean, faith is not required when God does everything the way I think he should. No, faith is a choice to keep following him, even when it seems in my mind to make no sense at all. I imagine that there are some here today that have sought to follow God's will for their life. You believe God was leading you, that this is where he wants you, Yet you find yourself in an unbelievable storm. And perhaps you've been questioning God, perhaps you've been grumbling, you've been doubting, or even just plain fearful. I believe God's message is for you. You of little faith. Why do you doubt? Keep trusting, keep your eyes on Him. The Lord did not ask Peter to come that he should perish. The Lord did not ask you to come that you should fall flat on your face. And the the verse that Kayla read to us, I believe, is so helpful. Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine. But notice it doesn't say if you pass through the waters, does it? What does it say? When? That's just about as much as a promise as the rest of it, isn't it? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And some of you may be protest- protesting your mind, yeah, but the rivers are drowning me. I am being burned. And you haven't done anything about it. God, where are you? You know, from a human standpoint, I think that could be a fair statement. There's a lot of junk that goes on in this world. But just a few chapters later, Isaiah reminds us God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways. His purposes are not our own, but someday it will make sense. I promise you, if you just keep trusting God, someday it will make sense. I mean, that's the whole point of the judgment, isn't it? You have the pre-advent judgment phase. For the angels and for the unfallen worlds to ask all their questions. You have the millennial phase where all of us, the righteous, get to ask our questions, the redeemed. And then you have the post millennial phase, even for the lost. Every question will be answered. No questions too hard, too tough, where Jesus says, Sorry, case closed, I'm God, you just have to trust me. No, everything is open to us, every question can be asked. And I believe in my heart of hearts at that moment I will say, God, you are fair, you are just, you are true, you've acted right in every case. You can be trusted. Somehow we've gotten this idea that it's about me. About life going perfect for me in the here and the now. Friends, somehow we've missed it. It's never about us, it's all about him. It's all about bringing honor and glory to Him. It's about His character being justified before the entire universe. It's about eradicating sin once and for all. It's about restoring the universe. It's all about Him. And at the end of the day, doesn't that take the pressure off? I don't have to be wildly successful. I don't have to have it all now. Things don't have to line up perfectly. As long as I am loyal to him, as long as I keep my eyes on him, he will bring me through the storm. How many promises do you think we claim for this temporal life when I think oftentimes he's thinking about in the whole scheme of the great controversy, I will be with you, I will see you through. My loyalty and faith needs to be in Him. And that's the one and only thing that can never be taken away from me. Is it true? Psalms 118, verse 6, the Lord is with me. I will, there's a choice here, I will not be afraid. What more can man do to me? You can take me, you can rob me of everything that I have, but you can't take away my loyalty to Jesus Christ. You can't touch it. Burn me at the stake if you want to. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of faith that I long for. I want to have a deep faith, a trusting faith, a finishing faith. A faith that recognizes God called me, I've followed that call to the best of my ability and God alone will bring me through to the end. So where are you this morning? Maybe you're trying to decipher God's call, to follow Him in a new way or a new ministry or a new job. Maybe the call is clear, but now it's time for you to respond to God's call to get out of the boat, get out of your comfort zone. Or maybe you've done both of those and you feel like you're in the midst of a storm this morning. And you need to trust that God will bring you through. And we take turns going through all three of those throughout life, do we not? But I challenge each of us To lean on him, to focus on him, to have faith and trust in him, knowing that he'll see us through. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Through the power and grace of Jesus Christ, may the Lord grant us a finishing faith today. Dear Heavenly Father, you alone know our hearts this morning. You know each individual need in the room. For some here, we're going through the valley of decision as we try and find your will for our lives. And so like Peter, we say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. For others of us, we've heard the call. We know what you're asking us to do, but it seems like walking on water, is too hard. Lord, give us the faith to respond to your call. But, Lord, still others here find themselves in the storm of life this morning, feeling overwhelmed and overburdened. We feel like we could sink at any moment, but you have not called us that we should fail. Lord, give us the faith to finish. For we know you are the one that calls us, that strengthens us, that redeems us. Give us the faith to listen. Give us the faith to act. And give us the faith to hold on, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.